The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 9 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC9. This is Secret Church 9, Episode 2. All right, here we go. Who is the church? God's definition of his people. Now, I want to be careful when I, when I even say that because there's not a place that we can go to in the word and say, and, and, and God gives us a dictionary definition. In fact, we see all kinds of, there are, one scholar said 96 different images of the church in the New Testament. And so there's just a multiplicity of pictures of the church that we see in Scripture. It's not very monolithic. But what I've got here is actually, and I'll talk about some of the books that I recommended in the back there, but um, Mark Dever in a great theology, Theology for the Church, um, uh, used this definition. And amidst all that I was studying and looking through, this this really summed up. And so I want to kind of use this and, and unpack it as a definition of the church. So it's not really God's definition of the church as much as it is Dever's definition of the church. But... I think it captures the essence of the multiplicity of images that we're going to see in the church. And then we'll kind of get it specific. We're going to start pretty general and then get it specific. So the church, here's where we're going to start. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him by serving him in this world. So that's where we're we're going to focus. And And the key word being there, why I wanted you to write in called is because the key word in the New Testament for the church is ecclesia. And that's kind of a compound word that is, that is, uses the word, the Greek word for call in it. It's literally is called out. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to unpack that definition. The body of people. The church is a gathering, a gathering of people. I reference that word ecclesia. It's written there, mentioned 114 different times in the New Testament. And we see it twice referring to an Old Testament assembly. So referring to a a gathering of people in the Old Testament. Three times it refers to a secular assembly. So just a a gathering of of people that that are not followers of Christ. But then 109 times it refers to a Christian assembly, to a gathering of Christians, to the church of God that is in Corinth. It's the gathering, the people of God in Corinth. Same, same picture. We, I mean, there's numerous ones, 109 of them. So, ecclesia, I mentioned, is a reference to those whom God has called out. We see this picture all over Scripture in Romans 1. It's really clear. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to be saints. So, the picture of the church is those whom God has called out. So, there's a clear distinction between the, those whom God has called out and those who have not. The, those who are in the church and those who are not those whom God has called together. By being called out, they've been called together in a gathering with one another, which is what we're going to see. Romans twelve five says we're members of one another. So the church is a gathering, an assembly. I put there the church is an earthly assembly with a heavenly destiny. I love these verses in Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Like, that's the picture of the church in heaven. The church, an earthly assembly with a heavenly destiny. So, main picture we see, ecclesia, it's a gathering, but then all kinds of other images. And we're just going to fly through these. The church is people, 
Obviously, the, the church is people, and we see that stage set with the Old Testament people of God and then coming about, and 1 Peter 2 is a great picture of that in the New Testament people of God. The church is a family. The church is a family. We are sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters. All over the New Testament, you see that language of brothers and sisters, which think about with me, just pause for a second. This is where I, I want to remind you that that our, our family relationship as the church supersedes even physical family ties in, in a sense. Because the reality is, say you have a, a, a Christian teenager, a teenager who comes to Christ and mom and dad are not followers of Christ. The reality is if, if they do not choose to follow Christ in their life, they die without Christ. Well, this, this teenager is going to have a relationship with brothers and sisters in the church in a way that will last billions upon billions of years in a way that's not going to happen with, with mom and dad. And so I, I just want you to, just, and I want you to think about why this is so important even for our, our brothers and sisters in persecuted contexts around the world. Like you come to Christ and oftentimes you are kicked out of your family or totally taken away. I mean, maybe sometimes even your family wants to kill you. And so you really see this meaning come alive. Oh, I, I have a whole other family, which is what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 10 with a rich young man and his disciples right after that. So we have brothers and sisters. We're a family. The church is a bride. Christ gave himself up for her as the bride. We see that imagery all over the Old Testament. The people of God are referred to as a, as a bride and uh, to, to God. And then we see that in the New Testament. We see Revelation 19, which we'll look at later one day. The wedding of the Lamb will come and we will be fully united together with Christ as his bride. So the church is a bride. The church is a building, but not bricks, mortar. Kind of picture like we would picture building. That's not what the New Testament's talking about here. When it talks about you are God's building, it's, it's literally God's. Well, the next thing, the church is a house. It's a picture of, of the dwelling place of God. When he's talking about building, was talking about house. This is where God dwells. It, we see temple kind of imagery all over the New Testament used to refer to the church. Just as God's presence and his glory dwelled in the temple in the Old Testament, so we see this happening in the church. We also see it with individual followers of Christ in 1 Corinthians 6. But, but we see this, the church is the dwelling place of God. A building, a house, the church is a temple. You see that here in 1 Timothy 3. Other places, God's spirit dwells within the church. God's glory is displayed through the church. That was the whole purpose of the temple. And that's what the New Testament is teaching us about the church. First Corinthians 6, which we looked at earlier, or 3, which we looked at earlier, the church is a field. You are God's field. God is growing this field. God is harvesting this field. Church is a field. The church is a tree. We won't read through Romans 11, but that's the picture there. Jesus talks about how we are, we are branches on a vine. The church is a priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2. Church is a priesthood, which is a great picture. The priests were the ones who worked in the temple and who offered sacrifices and praise to God, who had intimate knowledge of the glory of God in a way that nobody else has. And so Peter comes on the scene and says, you're a royal priesthood. Like you don't have to go through somebody else. Christ alone is sufficient. You can come to God and be Intimately familiar with the glory of God. We'll talk about that more later. Church is a priesthood. Church is a body. Church is a body. We are one body. We're a unified body. And so 
One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This picture of body shows us unity, but it also shows us diversity. We're a diverse body because each of us makes up different parts, are members of the body. And so it's this beautiful picture in the body of unity and diversity together. So that's, that's the introductory picture. The church is a body of people, a gathering of people, bride, house, temple building in which he dwells. Church is a body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ. So how do you become one of the called out ones? And I want to pause here for just a second because I realize that in a room this size and down the hill, there, there are likely some, if not many people who are here that you may, you may not know Christ. You may have not come to the point in your life where you have trusted in Christ as Savior and King and Lord. Maybe you're here and you're just exploring Christianity. Maybe you just saw a bunch of cars and thought, well, I'll just figure out what's going on in there. But I, I want you to see a picture of what it means to be called out by God. And, and as I walk through this picture, I... I pray that God, by His grace and His Spirit, will work in your mind and your heart in such a way that, that He might even, in this holy moment, like call you out and draw you to Himself. So I'd encourage you to, to open yourself up to that. And, and then for every, every Christian in this room to be reminded of what it means for us to be called out by God's grace through faith in Christ. Think about it. What we were in our sin. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul does not mince words. We were dead. Paul says, you had no spiritual life in you. You were dead. I think about that verse, Ephesians 2, 1. Anytime I do a funeral, especially anytime where I've I've carried a casket at a funeral, just struck by the realization, that is what I was in my sin. I'm dead. There's, there's an old story about a preaching professor who took his class out to a graveyard. And he said, I want you to stand over the graveyard to his students. He said, stand over the graveyard and, and preach and, and call the people who are in the graves to rise up and walk. And they're like, well, it's probably not going to happen. And they said, try it. And so one by one, they stepped up and shouted out over a silent, still graveyard. And after they'd all tried, he said, the reality is this is what you do anytime you preach. Because you are speaking to people who are dead in sin. Dead. We were living in darkness. We love the darkness. John 3 says, blinded by darkness. We didn't want anything to do with the light. We ran from the light. We were children of disobedience. This is what Romans 5 talks about. 
Genesis 3, serpent tempts Adam and Eve to disobey, and Adam and Eve disobey, and condemnation comes to all men, all of us, every single one of us. I got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and they are proving this. We all prove this. Every inclination, intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, Genesis 8, 21 says. You say, well, not me. I've always loved God. No, like you may have loved some God you made up in your mind, but the God of the Bible, you hated. And you rebelled against. You turned from. Children of disobedience, we were captivated by sinful desire, slaves to sin, and the snare of the devil, 2 Timothy 2 says, And ultimately, we were condemned to hell. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Romans 5.10, James 4.4 says we are enemies of God. Ephesians 2 earlier, which we read, says we were objects of eternal wrath. How's that for the power of positive thinking? There are all kinds of preachers today who will tell you that you need to believe in yourself and trust in yourself and have confidence in yourself. They are lying You don't believe in yourself. You're dead. (laughs) You're dead. Now, now here's the question. If you're dead, and you can't be more dead or less dead. Like, you're just dead. If you're dead, how can you come to life? And what, what can you do to come to life when you're dead? Nothing. You're dead. The only way, if you're dead, you can be, you can come to life is if you are acted on by another. There's no list of things here. There's no check off the box, walk the aisle, say the words here. You're dead. You need something to happen to you from outside. We were dead in our sin. It's what we were, but listen, this is what God did by His grace. I have so much to learn about what it means to know Christ, but I have learned this. I have learned to speak of my conversion to Christ in passive terms. I I didn't convert myself to Christ. I couldn't. I was dead. I was in the cast. I was in the darkness. I ran from the light. I was converted. I was, by the grace of God, acted upon by another. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with he has blessed, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Praise God. And look what he has done. You say, well, I don't know about all this chosen and predestined stuff in the Bible. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to throw out Ephesians 1? Why would you throw out Ephesians 1? It's good. What, What did the Father do? Listen, the whole Trinity is involved in this thing. The Father planned our salvation, chose us, predestined to us, gave it to us. Think of it. Before the sun was created, the moon was created, before one star shined in the sky, before one drop of water was put in the ocean, the Almighty God of the universe set his affection on you. He planned it, saw us in the casket dead, and he said, life. How can a holy God do that? Well, the son purchased our salvation. We have redemption through his blood. Redemption to buy, to purchase. He purchased us with his blood. And the spirit preserves our salvation. The spirit opens our eyes, changes our lives, and takes our dead souls and gives them life. To the praise of the glory of God. Oh, do we realize how wonderful this is? Like this. Well, there's this tendency. Some people think, well, we almost think the more dramatic a testimony of conversion to Christ is the better. Like the more drugs you did before, the more alcohol you drank, or the more whatever that you just indulged in. Wow, that was strong. And people come to Christ at like 10 years old, and they're like, well, you know, I, I disobeyed my mom, and, uh, and it's like, oh, this is boring. No, that's not boring. Like, the reality is you were dead in sin, a child of disobedience, captivated by sinful desire, and on a road that leads to an eternal hell, an object of wrath before a holy God. And that God, by His grace, spoke into your life by His Spirit and said, I want you and I give my Son to die on your behalf to purchase, to pay the price for your sin to make you mine. And He brought you to Him so that now the Spirit lives in you, guaranteeing your salvation for all of eternity. That's not boring. That's good. So, this is what it means to be the church. We are called by God's grace through faith in Christ. And what we now are as his church. What we now are. And this is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. We're going to camp out of here for just a minute. Because, oh, just, just read these with me. And you can turn there in your Bible if, if you want. But it's, it's right here. Uh, so... I don't know. Okay. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
but new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, drawing near. Now those verses sum up six chapters of some of the most intense theology in all the New Testament. The author of Hebrews, which only God knows who wrote that book, says says, this is, this is the deal. We are recipients of a new covenant. That's what he spends the whole, whole book talking about. We're recipients of a new covenant. We have access to God. Confidence to enter the holy place. Freedom. Access. Boldness. Some translations say to enter the holy place. Now think about how this is so huge because the old covenant, remember back in Exodus 19, which I got here, God, God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai where he was going to enter into covenant, Mosaic covenant with them. And, and the command was stay back in fear. You look down at verse, verse 18 here. It says, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, God answered him, and thunder, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. In other words, tell them to stay away from the mountain, because if they see my glory, they will be struck down. And so... And the reality is, if you're sitting looking at a mountain that's shaking and you got voice of thunder coming, like you're okay just to sit back and watch this thing unfold. And so that's, that's what they, they did. And, and that was the picture. We see all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God's supreme, indescribable glory. How can sinful man come into his presence? And so what you see is... and and. and Right after this in Exodus 19, we see the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And then in Exodus 25, God promises that he's going to dwell among his people in a tabernacle. Turns into the temple later in the Old Testament. And so God's going to dwell with his people. But that's the question. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And what God does is he sets up a provision in Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, an annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Atonement literally means reconciled or to be at one with something. And so God sets up a way for his people to be at one with him. He had said in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will surely die. That is the payment for sin from the very beginning of Scripture. And so how can a sinful people live in the presence of the Holy God? Like live, they should die. And so God sets up this provision whole day revolved around three elements. One, a priest entering an earthly sanctuary. This talks about Aaron here in Leviticus 16. Aaron will come to the holy place. Aaron is the high priest. He'll put on the holy linen coat, and the linen undergarment, tie the linen sash around his waist, wear the linen turban. These are holy garments. Shall bathe his water, body in water, then put them on. Like you, you're going to go, you don't go into the presence of God unclean. Like you take a lot of baths. And then second element, the blood of a spotless animal. 
Because you say, well, why, what's the deal with all the sacrifices all over the Old Testament? Well, the reality was sacrifices were there because the payment for sin is death. And so a sacrifice was death. It was death, the payment for sin being poured out. And so what happens is the, the priest would offer a sacrifice for himself. Then he would take the goat. He would sacrifice it. Jesus in Leviticus 16, 15 and 16. He would sacrifice the goat and take its blood into the Holy of Holies. And picture in the Holy of Holies, you had the, the law of God, Ark of the Covenant is what it's called. Basically, you had the law of God and then an atonement cover over the law of God. This was the, the picture of God's presence with his people. And, and what the priest would do is he would sprinkle blood over the atonement cover. And this picture of God's presence and his law that the people had broken to show that death had been paid. That was the picture that God gave to his people. And this was so this sacrifice that would need repeating. They would do this year after year after year after year. People would come together on the Day of Atonement. The priest would offer this sacrifice of atonement, the blood of sacrifice. And the effect was it was a reminder of all their sin. That's what Hebrews 10 says. These sacrifice were remi- sacrifices were a reminder of sins every year because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away the full payment of the people's sin. So we come to the New Testament and everything changes. New covenant, this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Instead of stay back in fear, the command in Hebrews 10, 19, draw near in faith. Come into the presence of God. What Old Testament saints were told, stay away. Church, followers of Christ, you're told to draw near. How? Provision. Not an annual sacrifice in the Day of Atonement, an abiding sacrifice in the death of Christ. You have confidence to enter the most holy place, not because you're a good person or because you attend church or because you prayed a prayer one day. You have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. He has given a sacrifice, these elements, a priest entering a heavenly sanctuary. Oh, this is good. The priests in the Old Testament entered an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle here on earth. Listen to Hebrews 9, 24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Priest entering a heavenly sanctuary, the blood of a sinless man, with the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctity for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The one who had no sin paid the price for sin in a sacrifice that will last forever. His blood guarantees an eternal covenant. The effect, the removal of all of our sins. Hebrews 10 says, because of Christ, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Those are beautiful words. It's not that God has amnesia and he forgets, like he knows everything. The beauty of His grace is that He knows every sinful thought and every sinful deed and every sinful motive. The things that you know that nobody else knows. That you would 
tremble if other people know. He knows them all, and yet he, he chooses not to hold one of them against you. Our guilt is gone, Hebrews 10 says, and our conscience is clear. Uh, shared recently at Brook Hills. Just want to bring it back real quick. Story of Rolls-Royce. Picture of guy in England, bought a Rolls-Royce. It was advertised as the car that would never, ever, ever, ever break down. So he buys one, really expensive. He drives it. One day he's in France and the car breaks down. And he calls Rolls-Royce and he's like, huh, never breaks down, huh? I'm in the middle of France and Rolls-Royce isn't working. And so they put a mechanic on a plane and fly somebody to France, fix the car, get him on his way. Now, he obviously, in the days to come, expects a bill, and he never gets a bill. Like, it's not often that somebody will fly a mechanic to you to fix your car. And so a couple months go by, he hadn't heard anything, so he calls up Rolls-Royce, and he says, listen, I, I know you fixed my car. I just want to pay my bill. I've got means. I can do this so I can get this behind me. And Rolls-Royce says to him, we're, we're sorry, sir, but we have absolutely... No record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. Oh, think of it. That the God of the universe would say about your life, I have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong in you. And as a result, we have access to God. Not just access to God, but we have an advocate before God. There's so much here in Hebrews. Jesus is the eternal king who forever rules us. He is our king, sitting at the right hand of God, and he is the high priest who forever represents us. Listen to this. Verse 25 of Hebrews 7. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You have a Savior on high. His work is not finished on your behalf. Yes, he has done all that is necessary to pay the price for your sin, but he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Members of a new, recipients of a new covenant and we are members of a new community. This is the whole picture. What the author of Hebrews says, in light of that, in light of that, draw near, hold fast, and consider, verse 24, how to stir up one another to love and good works. So this is what we do as the church. Because we're recipients of a new covenant, that also means we're members of a new community called the church. And together, we draw near to God in faith. We come to God together, not just you or me, together as a community. We come before him with sincere desire, confident assurance, full assurance of faith. Like we come to God with cleansed hearts. We come before him with purified bodies, our bodies washed with pure water, Hebrews 10 says. So what we do as the church, we draw near to God together. We hold fast to God in hope. We hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, Hebrews 10 said. And think about the barriers to hope. Even on the first century, book of Hebrews, 21st century, our brothers and sisters around the world, barriers to our hope. We will face trials. Those brothers and sisters in Hebrews were facing trials. The reality is there was a time when it was not easy to be a Christian, not easy to come out of Judaism to follow after Christ. We will face temptations. And you see Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, talks about how they were being... Suffer, they were suffering and being afflicted and their 
They were going to prison and property was being plundered. From what we can tell, this was not an easy time for these brothers and sisters. But, But what was the basis of their hope? The faithfulness of God to his promises. God is faithful. You go back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 and 20. You see that. The faithfulness of God to his promises. And don't miss this. The return of Christ for his people. Hebrews 9 talks about how, how we wait for Christ to come back a second time. Hebrews 10, 35 through 39 talks about how we're looking forward to our reward. The, the reality is, this is... This is, this is who we are. We're a people who draw near to God in faith. We hold fast to God in hope. And we motivate one another to love. I'm going to fly through this, then we're going we're to take a break. Oh, can I fly through this part? Okay, yeah, all right, we're going to try. All right. We motivate one another to love. We gather with one another regularly. That's why he talks about coming together. The church gathers together. We encourage one another continually. Let us encourage one another. Consider how to spur one another on toward Christ. That's what we do as the church. So we're a body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him by serving in this world. Keep going. We have been filled with the power of Christ. Oh, this is good. Now, we're not going to be able to read all this, but Ephesians 1, we just read the first part of Ephesians 1, which we established. We don't want to take it out. So if we're going to keep it in, it gets even better at the end of the chapter when it says, look at just at the end, verse 22 and 23 says, God has put all things under his feet, Christ, his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is what Paul's saying there. Christ has all authority, okay? He, he is the risen Savior, what, this is what Paul talks about in the first part of that, that prayer above. He's the risen Savior. He is the exalted King. He is the sovereign Lord to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that He is the Lord. So Christ has all authority everywhere. And the church, now follow this, the church has the fullness of Christ. That's what Paul said at the end there in the verses we read. That His body is the fullness of Him. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So follow this. Christ has all authority. The church has the fullness of Christ. Put it together. What does that mean? All the authority and all the earth belongs to the who? Church. Are you catching this? Like I'm not making this up. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 3. All things are yours. All are yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. Ephesians 2, 6 says, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Are you believing this? Like God has entrusted the fullness of Christ to us. Like the church is not weak in this world. We are victors in this world. We have the authority of Jesus Christ in us. We need not be timid. We're bold, a bold display of the glory of Christ. And this is where, attach it to the Great Commission. Jesus says, you go and make disciples. Why? Because I've got all authority in heaven and on earth, and I've given it to you. God's design is to use the body of his son to, the son to show the glory of his son to all creation. Listen to Ephesians 3.10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let that soak in. Like, and then you see it even, the rulers and authorities, this picture in Ephesians 6, 12, later in the book, talks about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Like you think about this, it will take your breath away. God is saying to all the angels in heaven and all the demons of hell, you want to see my glory? I'm going to, I'm going to take this man, this woman, and this man, this woman. I'm going to take them in their total sinfulness, captivated, ensnared by the devil. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring them out of the pit and I'm going to raise them up and I'm going to put my grace on them and I'm going to fill them with all my fullness and I'm going to lift them up and I'm going to show all the angels of heaven, all the demons of hell, my greatness in the church. Oh, don't cheapen that. God is saying, look at the church and you will see my son. You see Christ. Ah. Oh body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him by serving him in this world. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.